Have you ever wondered what the first Christians believed, how they lived, how they understood the faith, what they believed about Jesus Christ and the living of the Christian life? These are questions we're going to get into in this amazing series on the Church Fathers starting right now. This is an educational series by the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. Slavi, Susu Christu, glory to Jesus Christ. This is your host, Christopher. Welcome to our inaugural episode of the Fathers of the Church series. Some of you are going to be asking, wait a second, you've got a beard, you haven't had a beard in the early release episodes, and wasn't this supposed to come out first? I've decided to redo this episode, and the beard is because I've taken a little bit of time off for family, getting ready to go back to work, and I am just about ready to shed my beard, shave my beard. So enjoy it while it lasts. It's uh, very important to us in the East, but unfortunately, it is a health hazard working in, uh, working in fire and EMS. So what we're going to look at today is the question of who are the church fathers, why should we study them, and what can they offer us as Christians living 2,000 years later, or 1,800 years later, or even 1,500 years later? Why do we want to look at the church fathers? And that is a great question, and we're going to dig into that. So the first question I want to look at is, how do we even approach the church fathers? And I think the answer there is going to be that we want to approach them as persons. We want to approach them as individual personalities. It's important to remember that all of the authors of these various works that we're going to be studying in the next year on this Church Fathers series is a person from a specific point in time, from a specific geography, that is from a specific location, lived and walked and actually was a a breathing individual that lived in a specific culture in a specific century. And often the work that was written was in context of a particular issue or a particular purpose. And we need to remember this because it is that context of a living person dealing with living issues that we want to try to approach the text and understand it with. When we approach these individuals, it's going to be very important for us to remember this concept of the development of doctrine. And some people are going to say, what are you talking about the development of doctrine? There's just Jesus Christ and truth and truth doesn't change. So the way that I would explain it in layman's terms of what is development of doctrine is think that you're driving. I want you to close your eyes and, and picture yourself driving down the road and you're out on a very, very flat part. You know, the thing that comes to mind with me would be, you know, out in the desert or out on a, a country plane or something like that. And you can see this, this, miles off into the distance. And all you have is this, well, you see this something that's on the side of the road, or there's a car that's a couple miles up ahead. And there's just this, this vague, ambiguous shape that you see. And as you get closer, that shape doesn't change. The reality itself does not change, but you begin to see it in more detail. It goes from more ambiguous to more clear. It goes from less precise to more precise. It goes from fuzzy and hazy to very, very sharp. The reality itself that you're approaching doesn't change, but your explanation of it, your characterization of it, indeed, even how you may understand uh, aspects of it 
go from that foggy to razor sharp, the closer that you get and right up on top of it. And so development of doctrine is a way of explaining how over 2000 years, Christians have received that one truth, that one fullness of revelation from God in Jesus Christ. And yet we using words that were given to us by him in language begin to make those things that were implicitly always believed in that fuzzy figure from a distance in how through the controversies and as we've proceeded through time and approached through space, so to speak, this living reality, we've reflected upon it and begun to use words that clarify that truth that was always present, not always clearly articulated the way that we would from that distance, so to speak. So what types of writings are we going to find in the church fathers? Well, wait a second. Who were they first? Hang on just a second. We're going to get to who they were. What are some of the types of writings that we're going to find? We're going to find exhortations, homilies, personal correspondence. We're going to find hymns, liturgical texts, some of the oldest hymns that we still maintain today in the East are, can actually be found in some of these texts in the first and second centuries. We're also going to find poetry, catechetical manuals. We're going to find theological treaties. It's just a fancy word of saying a explanation of what we believe and how we would speak about God, a precise description of our belief. We'll find creedal statements. We'll find amazing spiritual reflections like the Confessions of St. Augustine. We will find scriptural commentaries, and we will find martyrologies, the accounts of the martyrs, and we will find Apocrypha. Now, wait a second, what are we talking about Apocrypha? The word Apocrypha is kind of a catch word, and I want to warn you that like the word court, it's a simple word, everybody understands what the meaning of the word court is. Well, that could be referring to the place that you go play basketball at. That could be the place that you play tennis at if you're out in the country club. That could be the little fishbowl if you like to play squash. That could also be the place that you would go date and woo a potential spouse in 18th, 19th century England. It could also be the place where you end up before a judge having to give an account of what you did and at least what you're accused of doing. All of those definitions are tied up with the word court. So even that simple word can become very complex depending upon what is meant when that word is being used. So when we look at the word apocrypha, very early on, apocryphal writings were used to describe the secret writings of the Gnostics, which was one of the early Christian factions that separated itself from the followers of Jesus because they taught that there were secret writings that Jesus didn't teach the apostles. And over the course of time, that notion of Apocrypha meant hidden writings, that is, the writings that weren't part of the, the public life of the church. And so early on, a lot of the Apocryphal texts were writings from outside the Christian community that really didn't have the weight because they didn't come from the apostles or the successors of the apostles. They didn't come from within the community. And so the apocryphal writing were those strange pieces and uninspired. Now, many, many, many years later, especially after the time of the Protestant Reformation, you get this, well, there's deuterocanonical and there's apocryphal and there's some books that 
Catholics and Protestants will both say are apocryphal, like the uh, Apocalypse or the Gospel of Peter. And then you'll have works that, um, like the books of Maccabees, where Protestants will say, well, that's apocryphal, and Catholics and some Orthodox would say, well, no, 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 that's 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 canonical or second canon, deuterocanonical. It's part of the, the, the Greek Old Testament that we accept. And in that sense, the word apocryphal gets kind of changed from that original meaning. But when we look at this originally, some of these apocryphal texts are actually works that were written in the name of apostles because they figured if they put them in an apostle's name, that would make them, you know, more easily uh, to be accepted by potential believers as a way of kind of spreading these various diverse secret teachings that people had that they didn't get from the apostles and that they wanted to tout as being somewhat related to the apostles and the apostles teaching as a way to, Hey, come join our, come join our faction. And there are a number of early factions. Sometimes the word heresy is used, uh, but that was just at the time they didn't speak English. The word uh, underlying that was just basically being picky and choosy. So you've got kids, I've got a bunch of them. It's just like the kids that don't want to eat the mac and cheese or the kids that don't want to eat the Brussels sprouts. They just kind of wanted to pick what they wanted to believe about the gospel, and they picked and choose what they wanted to receive and didn't. And so the, the full church or the, the, the Christian community said, well, look, you're just heretics. You're picky. You can't do that. You can't have a halfway with Jesus. You can't have a half teaching with Jesus. You have to accept all of it or you're rejecting all of him. There's no middle ground with him. So within the apocryphal text, there are four different categories. There's the gospels, there's the epistles, there's the acts, and then there is the apocalypse. And within that kind of non-Christian or pseudo-Christian writing, which is really probably more accurate, now that we've kind of looked at some of those categories of writings, one of the questions we're going to ask is, what are some reasons to study the church fathers? One of the most important motives or reasons for studying these writers and their works is that they lived, some of them knew the apostles, some of them knew the first generation of disciples. They bear witness to this universality of tradition. They have a remarkable literary guide. They are rich in a spirit, a way of speaking of the early church that is very often lost, especially in our age of modern man and modern philosophy and, and skepticism that, that is all around us. They are reliable witnesses to the gospel truth. And they are also reliable in providing us methods and ways of thinking about the Christian faith. They give us an, a firsthand example of how Christians think how they approach reading the Old Testament, how they pray, how they worship, what they believe about, about the doctrines of Christ. They give us that model to follow. And although we'll see that many of them have side, many of them have difficulties and errors and disagreements among themselves, often because these things were not defined or clarified or articulated sharply at that point when they were living, they nevertheless give us this insight of how to do theology and how to encounter the mysteries of Christ. There are a couple of things that we need to make a note of before we try to just dive headlong into the fathers, before we can go into what would qualify someone as a church father. Six things that I want us to take a look at here. One of them is that we should not assume 
that there was uniformity across time and space. If we read something from a church father in 125 or 175 AD that was writing in Southern Europe, we should not assume that, therefore, every Christian community in North Africa and in Asia Minor and in the rest of Europe was doing the exact same thing and believed the exact same thing at that point in time. We have to be careful about taking one instance and saying, therefore, everybody believed this and every place was doing this. This was how it was everywhere, as if the internet and email and printing it existed. No, there is still this organic transmission from living people to living people in an age where travel was difficult, in an age where culture was huge, and aspects of Christian expression, aspects of Christian language and worship were all heavily local in their culture and in their way of living. So we need to be careful about that. The second thing we want to be careful of is that just because something is mentioned for the first time doesn't mean that that's the first time it was believed. A lot a lot of the church father writings were often in response to an issue. And the longer that something existed before it was disputed is often called the argument from silence. But it's very important because people didn't write letters expensive on paper and animal skins. They didn't waste all of their energy to dispute things that everybody believed. And so we need to be careful that just because something may not be found to be mentioned until the second or the third or fourth century doesn't mean that it wasn't implicitly always believed. Think about that in your own life, in your own families, in your correspondence at work, and what you watch on the news and stuff like that. What bleeds, leads. And wherever there's the controversy, well, that's where all the attention goes. And if there's not a controversy, then that doesn't mean that it wasn't believed. Another thing that we want to be careful about reading the Church Fathers, the third thing, is that because somebody expressed something with a tone of certainty, therefore everybody agreed with them, is not always the case. You can find many Church Fathers who spoke with adamant conviction, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were right and that everybody agreed with them. That may very well have been the case, but we don't want to make that logical assumption. The fourth thing that we want to remember is don't assume that the writings of the church fathers were made without an interpretation. As I had mentioned earlier, they're writing in response to a specific time, a specific place, a specific issue, a specific culture. All of that needs to be taken into, and we need to try to see what they were saying within that whole context. And we need to try to understand the interpretation that they gave as best as we can decipher rather than reading in a 20th or 21st century vision back into their work. Don't assume, because the church fathers didn't have modern medicine and email and electricity, that they were somehow unintelligent people. Many of them were extremely, extremely brilliant people in ways that make a lot of us, uh, if you've ever seen the website peoplewalmart.com or stuff like that, or if you ever watch what people write in the comments not poking at you, but if you ever look at what people write on Twitter and the rest of that, compared to what these ancients wrote, some of them were actually very intelligent and would make most of us look like buffoons, would make most of us look pretty stupid. So don't assume because that they lived back then that therefore they just were like cavemen. 
absolutely not the case. Some of them are really brilliant, as we'll see. Also, the most important of the six things we want to be careful is don't assume that they were like you. Don't assume they're the same skin color. Don't assume they spoke the same language. Don't assume they had the same manners of expression, the same idioms, the same jargon. They talked the same way, thought the same way. Most of them, especially from North Africa and Middle East, were darker skin. They're black, olive skin tone, especially in Southern Europe. They didn't look like your, you know, your wasp, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, you know, 19th century American culture. And try not to read in your culture all the way back into their writings. So now that we've done this whole lead up, what are the characteristics that make someone a church father? And I want to preface and say that there's a couple of different ways that a couple of different ways to describe them. Ecclesial writers, church fathers. I don't want to make this too difficult too quickly, but generally speaking, church fathers have four marks that separate them from a lot of the other writers at the time, but this is not all black and white cut and dry. You'll find that in different schools of thought, some people are church fathers, some people are ecclesial writers. The four basic points are generally a orthodoxy of thinking. That is, by and large, at the time period where their doctrine was developed or ambiguous and not yet developed before a council defined something, they, for the most part, held the fullness of the faith. The second mark is that they lived a holy life that they tried to imitate and were believed to have imitated the gospel of Christ. The third mark is that there was a later or subsequent approval of the church. The fourth mark was that they lived in antiquity. And these four characteristics were actually determined or established and later adopted by uh, the theologians of the church, originally following this list, these four points from St. Vincent of Lorraine, who lived in the 5th century. But there's a lot of disputes, and these are not all hard and fast. Take somebody like Origen, who held many dubious items of belief, many things that were kind of out there. Um, he he seems suspect in some things. Take a look at Tertullian, who affiliated himself with a faction that had a hard time reconciling apostates to the church, who denied Christ under the persecution and then wanted back to, to come back to the church and, hey, everything's okay. There are a lot of Christians that thought that that was almost an unforgivable sin, and Tertullian affiliated with them. In hindsight, we would know, yes, even God could forgive them as, as you know Jesus would forgive Peter in the denial. But in that apostolic age, apostasy was almost a once-and-done deal. It was very foreign culturally to think you'd just keep going to confession you know, every day or every week if you needed to. There was that rigorousness that was very prominent within the church that only centuries later would become tempered through an emphasis of mercy, much as Christ was to Peter, and as we all would hope that Christ would have been to even Judas. Then there's the question of what is antiquity, and generally in the Western schools of thought, Roman Catholic, or what we Easterners would call Latin Catholic, and the Protestant schools of thought would say that somewhere around the 7th or 8th century is generally when the end of antiquity occurred. Interestingly enough, in liturgical matters, there is a dissertation endorsed by Pope Benedict XVI on the eve of his election, back when he was still a cardinal, that looked at, in liturgical matters, the 
era of the Holy Fathers was actually not ended in the 5th or 6th centuries, but went all the way up to the 12th and 13th and parts of the 14th centuries. And the question is really, does that also not apply to patristic matters if it does apply to liturgical matters? And in many Eastern schools of thought, uh, predominantly in the Orthodox, but in some Eastern Catholic circles, there is also this conception that the antiquity never really ended. Revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. But the development of doctrine, the preservation of the teachings of the fathers of the church has never ended. And to keep it simple, there's never been a solemn council definition that said the church fathers ended at the 7th century or at the 6th century or at the 13th century. These are just the general trends and approaches to studying the church fathers. And I wanted you to be aware that Eastern schools of thought tend to see that this era of the life of the fathers continued on into the Middle Ages, and some would even say up into our present day, in a way that was very different from a Western approach, which would say, no, the patristic era ended, and then scholasticism rised, and then now we have the modern era, and we're going to subdivide this between doctors of the church and fathers of the church. But I don't want to get too complicated in this introductory episode. Those are generally the four marks. So what do you guys think? Have you enjoyed the episode so far? Okay, hurry up. Let's get it over with. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. You've already got Clement of Rome out there on early release on our show. And through the month of December and into January, I'm going to be releasing eight episodes on Ignatius of Antioch with a guided reading looking at his life and his understanding and his practice of Christianity. So if you've enjoyed this episode so far, please go ahead and hit the like button. Go ahead and subscribe, consider subscribing, and click the bell for notifications. If you haven't already, check out our website, theufcshow.com. And until next time, 